Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadra Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Looks like we are live. Welcome, everybody, to the first live quadcast featuring the one and onlys, Jane Philpott, Andre Bacard, and Brian Goldman. It's a true privilege that they're able to do this with us. I got to tell you straight up, I got to apologize for the background noise. I decided to go to the hospital today to do this, knowing that my three kids are in the house and are going to cause a lot of ruckus but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be as bad as what's going on now. So I apologize for the background noise. There'll be a lot of muting um, for uh, looking forward. But um, I want to just take a moment and just thank everyone that has been part of the team and just to take a a step back and look what is happening today. Like what an accomplishment. Some of the great Canadian minds all together uh, virtually to discuss our path forward with COVID-19. And um, it's truly special. I want to thank Julia, who's with us on the panel right now, actually, to facilitate questions. And she's an all-star, been great at, um, she's got a, her own um, website, spoonfulofscience.net. Shoot to that if you're looking for excellent nutritional advice. I want to thank Kim Sutton, who has been glorious and essential in, in establishing our new website, solvinghealthcare.ca. If you're interested at all, check out um, the affiliate link associated with the, the show. Um, she'll give you a discount on designing your website and also um, any online businesses that you might be establishing. Next, I want to tr- our, thank our, tr- our sponsor, the better, the better Together Project by Haley Harlick. This is uh, something I'm really proud of her for setting up. It's a, it's an, um, a community for uh, spouses of, of physicians and really is something special. And it was established about a year ago, but really took off um, around COVID-19 to support families that are frontline staff and the, and the spouses there. And her, her website's called um, flip side, the flip side of life. Um, but she's having an online event July 9th, the Better Together Project. Um, and if you use the promo code Solving Healthcare, you'll get 10% off on, on sign up fees. And my wife, she'll be attending. Um, I, I just want to really commend Haley for the work that she's doing. Um, next, I want to thank all the frontline. Um, staff, the, uh, the GoFundMe Frontline, uh, Feed the Frontline st- um, staff initiative that took place over the last few months. We, we went out hoping to raise about $3,000 and we ended up raising over 32000 and it was so meaningful just seeing how the community rallied behind us. And I, I can tell you wholeheartedly at all the places I worked at, they felt it. They felt the eMERGE staff, the ICU staff, the, the testers at the, at the COVID sites, 
It meant a lot that we were thinking of them. And so I want to really commend you guys for the support. We've closed the fund now. Um, but yeah, 32 plus thousand dollars later, it's incredible. Um, la almost last. Uh, one other charitable initiative we started, Bridges Over Barriers. This was really produced to help um, support kids that are of need that you know with basic their basic needs from their sh like shoes to bus passes and what have you and um this was put on by the social workers over at uh, the ottawa school district and ariel uh burns has helped initiate that and she reached out to us when um covid first hit because a lot of families were needing that support, not being able to afford diapers, not to be able to afford food on their table because of the economic consequences of, of COVID-19. And, and so I, I just really wanted to bring up that, that initiative. And actually our merchandise this month, if you like what you see, um, is going towards the Bridges Over Barrier Fund. So um, there'll be links attached to the, um, the comments there. Last thing before I introduce our, our, our amazing guests is um, if you want to be able to get transcripts and the, the podcast version and uh, uh, a copy of this video, um, just type in Mega in the comments um, section and um, you'll, you'll get your own copy uh, emailed to you. Um, so yeah, please check that out. Okay. That is all I have to say before introducing, first off, Dr. Jane Philpott, G General Practitioner, former Minister of Health, incoming Dean for Queen's Medical School, and eventually we're also going to talk about your work at the Participation House because that was incredible. Um, so welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It, uh, absolutely. Next, I want to introduce... Dr. Brian Goldman, ER physician, host of CBC's White Coat Black Art, and the new, the new podcast, The Dose, which I got to tell you, Brian, the, the COVID cont content has been money. I've learned a lot through listening to that. Um, Best-selling author of The Power of Kindness. Welcome to the show, my friend. Really happy to be here in such great company. Thanks, and thanks for inviting me. Absolutely, absolutely. And the one and only Andre Picard, who's made an appearance on the show before, um, and it was one of our most popular shows, Andre's, uh, health reporter for the Globe and Mail, award-winning journalist, author of Matters of Life and Death, which is unbelievable. Uh, every Canadian should read this. And uh, welcome back, my friend. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, so where to begin? COVID-19, you guys, how are you guys feeling, by the way? Like, we've been uh, out of isolation now. We're uh, starting to see each other again. How are how, how we feeling? And none of us want to start. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> none of us want to start. You know, I'm, uh, I'll start just because, just because we hate dead air, people who work in radio. Um, uh, I'm, I'm feeling uh, that... Um, whatever the worst we prepared for in, in where I work didn't happen, and it may be because the preparations were great. Uh, I think a lot of my colleagues who work in the emergency department um, have had the feeling of standing on the precipice of a disaster that, that for many of us didn't come. 
Uh, and a lot of us, now of course it did come, it, it came in droves in long-term care facilities and places like Participation House, which we're gonna hear about, uh, and in, in homeless shelters, so vulnerable populations. But at, at, at a lot of hospitals, the volumes in the emergency department were down, and so, and you know, we did have uh, a number of protected code blues where we, you know, we had to, to don the uh, personal protective gear, you know, the, the, the extra special protection, face shields, double gloves, et cetera, and, 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 and learned those, you know, how to, how to go through those, those procedures. I went through one or two myself. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, now we're taking a deep breath and we're seeing what's gonna happen next. You know, volumes in the emergency department where I work at, at Sinai Health System are starting to creep up. Uh, but, you know, we're not seeing a lot of COVID these days. And are we through the first wave? Not sure, because I don't think we're doing a lot of good testing uh, in the province of Ontario, comprehensive testing, even though the numbers are up. And, and as we start to open things up and, and have, you know, more people returning to business, uh, I notice there's a lot more traffic on the streets. Some people are wearing masks, some people aren't. I still think there's a fair amount of confusion as, in the general public as to what they should do. And, and so I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen next while we wait for a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all kind of felt that, um, especially outside of the GTA, like we really were not hit hard here in Ottawa. Our ICUs were never overrun. The emergency rooms were never overrun. Um, so it has been a, a lot of uh, anticipation and and that talk of the second wave I that's another that's a, another big uh, topic of discussion too but how would you maybe maybe Jane or Andre how would you grade or how would you evaluate how we've done nationally in terms of managing COVID-19? Andre do you want to go you start with an A. <laughs> Oh, I got the short straw. I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it hasn't been one epidemic. It's been many different outbreaks around the country. So we have to grade it, I think, almost province by province, almost region by region. And it's, uh, it's very much like healthcare itself. I think there's very much a, a west to east gradient. We know uh, in the west, people are healthier, better outcomes, better health systems. And uh, we've really kind of fell apart in Ontario and Quebec. I think that's uh, been some real lacking i'm trying to think of polite words uh, there's been some failures in, no in, need for politeness here well i have to be semi-polite but you know the what we're what we're down to now is we have uh uh outbreaks in, in montreal and toronto and the rest of the country is sort of eh, you know it's pretty concentrated in those two centers now and uh, that's both good and bad it's good in that we have it in a, a narrow confine but it's bad in that these are big cities with the potential to to blow up so uh, unlike our other two guests i have it easy there they've been working on the front lines and i toil behind a keyboard so it's pretty easy even though i'm in the the upper center of the epidemic montreal it's pretty uh, life goes on my biggest risk is a uh, twitter overdose as opposed to infection. So uh, I'll leave the expertise, the frontline stuff to, to our expert guests. Nonsense, Andre. You're writing what, what we're often thinking. So thank you very much. We, we consider you a better than honorary member of the front lines. <laughs> <laughs> any, any thoughts, Jane? Well, I, you know, and kind of going back to your first question in terms of how we're feeling overall, 
Um, I'm, a, I'm generally an optimistic person. I try to always look at things uh, with as much of a positive light as I can. But I would have to say I'm, I'm pretty worried. Um, yes, it's true. Maybe, you know, we're kind of the, slightly over the hump of the first wave. But uh, as Andre indicated, the numbers in Ontario and Quebec are still terrible. And we are dealing with an increasingly focused uh, epidemic, not just focused in the big cities of Toronto and Montreal, but if you break it down to who's being hit in the, in the greater Toronto and greater Montreal area, you're starting to see geographic foci. And then even within those geographic foci, you're seeing the socioeconomic uh, background of those who are hardest hit. And of course, looking at vulnerable populations, the worst of which of course being the elderly with you know, somewhere between 80 and 85% of deaths being amongst the elderly. And there are obviously many other vulnerable groups that if they haven't yet been hit this time are still at very greatly increased risk uh, compared to the rest of the population. Um, I saw a really horrible outbreak, which is uh, finally almost over in the uh, participation house. Uh, but in, for a couple of weeks there, we were dealing with a facility where we had 40 uh, out of 42 residents who were COVID positive, 57 staff who were infected with COVID. It was, uh, I, there were days where I felt like I was in a war zone. It was, it was a frightening experience and, uh, and a really tough one. And you realize that uh, the resources within our healthcare system are unevenly distributed and they, I mean, this is not new, but uh, certainly uh, in the, sort of March, April days, uh, there were not necessarily, in retrospect, not necessarily the best decisions made in terms of where those resources would go. And as a result, uh, people suffered. Yeah, and that's a good point. Like, if, if we could redo this, you know, like if we could really, you know, step back and, and the reason I mentioned this too is because if there is a second wave we should be thinking about the lessons we're learning here you know how do you think we could have done a better job protecting our vulnerable like well boy I wish every one of us would be happy if we could could go back and 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 do things differently hindsight uh, is amazing and uh, there are many uh, ways that we would have pushed harder. I mean, how far back do we get to go, right? Can we go back several years and invest in public health and build a really great public health infrastructure and put in some really powerful public health legislation uh, federally and provincially? You know, can we invest in housing and all of those things? So, I mean, obviously, there's all kind, there are all kinds of things that we would do differently if we could go back far enough. Uh, but I, I think uh, there aren't very many who really saw how bad this would be. Uh, and there certainly were not a lot of voices in the early days saying, hey, let's not just get the hospitals ready. Let's get the long-term care facilities ready. Uh, let's get the group homes and the shelters uh, prepared and uh, educated in terms of protection. There are a lot of things we would do differently and we sure better be ready for the second wave and make sure that PPE is there and the public health education is there. And we have a heck of a lot of work to do uh, to strengthen our public health systems. So to what Jane just said about, about 
uh, protecting, doing a better job of protecting the, the vulnerable and addressing those, those social uh, determinants of health, um, you know, the, the, uh, in the community and in long-term care facilities, which, which I think is absolutely correct. If I could have added one more thing, it would have been the best state-of-the-art uh, testing and contact tracing using all technologies and and now if you know if if you know when there's an inquiry looking at at our response our initial response to to COVID-19 you know if if it turns out that we couldn't that 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 the province of Ontario for instance could, couldn't have cranked out tests any faster than they did then okay I'm okay with that but there are many many people who've been watching this far smarter than I am in disease surveillance infectious disease public health Dalalana School of Public Health uh, who have said that Ontario could have done a much better job procuring tests, hiring staff uh, to, to administer the tests, hiring, you know, purchasing enough reagents, test kits, and, and doing the contact tracing, which had we done it, we would have been in a much better position to, to, uh, to know where the hotspots were uh, and, and, and address the issues of, 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 of who was becoming infected and why. And had we done that, I, I think we would have done, we would be in a better situation than we are right now. Yeah, the, that whole issue with testing, like I, I, I really wonder how much of it was availability. You know, cause like, um, if I'm assuming this was pretty global, like, sorry, national where, the, the the criteria initially for testing was quite specific. It was like obviously needed to travel, come from a, like a, a like a, like China or Wuhan area, and and now we're allowing for obviously a lot more broader testing. And I, I'm not sure if that's because of availability or just because of you know I hate to say it, maybe cost savings initially. I I don't know you know, but it certainly would have and still is a key component to us being able to um, get back to any form of normal life and also to, to contain um, as much as we can. One question I do have to you though, well, is our whole goal though of the, of, you know, was flattening the curve and to, um, you know, really make sure our, our, our healthcare systems aren't being overrun. And my sense, is that the the goals are changing constantly and i want to i want to hear from you guys do you guys feel the same way like because our curve right now is flat our our hospitals in our, locally are not being overrun um what's your guys a sense of in terms of like our overall objectives is, does, has that changed in your mind i think the overall objective is to you know, minimize the damage to the public. So I think that remains the same. The, the large goal is the same, right? We don't want to have our hospitals overwhelmed. <clears throat> but beyond that, now that we've been at this for a while, I think we have to be much more specific. As, as Jane said, there's all these hotspots springing up and there's gonna be more of them as people go back to work. I think the, the workplace is turning out to be our next big challenge. So we're seeing people going back to work, we're seeing big numbers of infections in farm workers, factory workers. And you know what happens when you start going back to 60 story office towers with crowded elevators and subways, et cetera. So I think the challenges become much more specific, but the overall 
goal remains the same. It's we know people are going to get infected. We try to minimize that. And then I think the most, single most important thing is to have the capacity to snuff out uh, an outbreak when it happens. They're going to happen. There's no question. But let's not let them spread like wildfire. And the only way we can do that is with really good testing and tracing and isolation and you know, some provinces are doing that well. And again, Ontario and Quebec are not doing that well. And I think that's why we have to be concerned about the way they're opening up, much more so than Alberta or BC. So combine that, Andre, with the fact that, that you know, I don't know what percentage of the population has become, has actually been infected. Um, you know, I've heard Alison McGeer in the last few weeks say 3%. If 3% of the population has been infected, if it's 5%, that's, uh, you know, out of a potential of 80, 70 to 80 percent of the population becoming infected. Uh, so flattening the curve has bought us time. Uh, but time to do what? And, and as you've said, I mean, that's what we need to do. Uh, we, and, 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 you know, to, to be able to swoop in to a hotspot and, and, and discover as quickly as possible, uh, you know, who, who's infected and who they're at risk of, 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 of transmitting the infection to, you have to have on-the-spot uh, testing, and and I I don't I'm not at all convinced that we're up to that task. You know I, I think that that uh, you know that public health units do a relatively good job once the cat's out of the bag. You know once there's a you know a meat packing plant or a factory where 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 there's an outbreak, you know they shut it down and uh, and and they do a good job of contact tracing. It would be nice if they could do that before there's a massive outbreak. In, 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 in that facility. And I haven't seen, you know, perhaps, you know, you've been, I haven't been reading a lot about what's going on in British Columbia. Have they done a better job of swooping in and, and controlling outbreaks before they, before they become larger? Yeah, I think there's no question they have, you know, they had the first nursing home outbreak, Lynn Valley, and then they really set the standard. And I, what I'm puzzled by is why other provinces didn't follow suit because they did all the right things in response to that. You know, single staffing, you couldn't move around. Uh, the public health uh, uh, director, uh, Bonnie Henry, took over the staffing of, house, of homes, etc. So we, we know what works, and it's that Canadian disease of provinces not fault, learning from others, other jurisdictions. Which is what we always say is so great about the Canadian federalism is that everybody can experiment and learn from one another, but here we're having a terrible experiment going on and, and uh, you know, people are suffering and I don't see as much learning as there should be from those who are, are doing the worst. I mean, I, I would just go back to the comments around the fact that it's, you know, I, I think we're getting complacent. We're saying, oh, we're flattening. Well, you know, flattening is not good enough. We got to get over the, over the hump and back down to zero. We're seeing Spain today not having any new cases and they were in a terrible dire situation just a few weeks ahead of us generally as far as the curve goes. But in Ontario, we flatlined with you know, 300, 400 new cases a day across the country, well over 100 deaths uh, every day still. Uh, we're not seeing the, the kind of bending of that curve that we ought to be seeing. And I do think there needs to be, and, and hopefully there is serious examination as to what that's all about. Uh, I still say some of the roots of this are a very weak public health infrastructure, which 
Um, you know, why, why has that been worse in Ontario and Quebec than the rest of the country? It's a, it's a little bit hard to say. And as Brian says, we'll have to kind of examine all of this a little bit later. But uh, the, these agencies, and it's largely been run through the regional public health units, uh, have not historically had been well staffed. Uh, certainly not enough people that were trained in what contact tracing is like. It's, it's probably a lot harder than any of us imagine. Uh, and you know, the other thing I don't think we've brought up yet is, is it's been a data jungle. You know, the, the understanding where the cases are, uh, where those tests are being done, when they're coming back positive, is somebody actually on top of it and getting, uh, getting that contact tracing uh, started within 24 hours. Um, we have a ton of work to do here in Ontario still. Yeah, it, there's a, a lot of great points there, like, like Brian specifically, like the, not really having a sense of how, how, how rampant is it COVID-19 been in the, in our, in the population? Like, is it 3%? Is it 5%? Is it like, you're seeing numbers in California early, like six months, six weeks ago, like at 12%. And you know, that, that, that's important data. And um, getting back to Jane, your point too, in terms of like the, the mess of the data. The one thing I want, I, w I do want to say though, is I always find it a little bit, difficult to interpret the data like there's some concrete stuff like you know hospitalization ICU admission deaths um, but like when you, we just hear about like a increased numbers in and like I feel like the denominator is not the same than it was a couple of weeks ago you know and I, I wish this was a little bit more um, apparent or more or, or standard in terms of you know, this is what this means. And, and cause a lot of the data to me, it, there's a lot of nuance there. Like, is it, is it a localized when we see those increased cases? Is it a hot spot? Is it, is it all in Toronto? And cause that really, that's different than just, you know, throughout Ontario that these numbers are going up. Cause one thing I, I do want us to touch on is there is a consequences of us not, of, of us being in lockdown and, and so forth, which, in my opinion, we don't talk about enough. You know, like we did a show with um, Michelle Ward on the increase in child abuse during during these time periods. Um, we worry about mental illness, drug abuse. Um, so I, I really think we got to be clear personally on our goals and our objectives. And and once we hit them, we think we got to talk about how we get back to normal life if we can get back to normal life. Um, but um, I'm talking a lot here. The and I got some really important, beautiful guests. You don't have a fire alarm going in anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I, I needed the fire alarm. But um, and the <laughs> last thing I would say too is like the, the public health, if, like investing in public health. I hope at the end of this we see the light. I hope we see how valuable it is to have that infrastructure in place. Because I mean, this is not going to be the only time we get we face a pandemic. Um, so like, that's such an important point, Jane. Yeah, well, and, and, and Quad, you know, we had an inquiry, uh, led by Justice Archie Campbell into SARS and many people, including, including me said, we're better prepared this time than we were for SARS. And now I'm not sure at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think we dropped the ball and I, and I think that that public health infrastructure, uh, 
has frayed at the edges. And, and, I, and I think we're paying for that right now. I think overall we're paying for the fact that, that uh, tax cuts were in ascendancy and, and, and service cuts were, uh, were, were, were part of that. And, and, you know, but to, to get back to some of the things you were talking about, the reason why we harp on ICU admissions, admissions to hospital and deaths is that they are the most robust indicators you have in a population that isn't doing enough testing. Those are the lag indicators that tell us, the problem is they tell us what was happening three or four weeks ago, not today. And, and if you want to control an outbreak where, where you've got, what, 30 to 40 percent uh, of, of cases through asymptomatic transmission, uh, then, then in the absence of testing, the only indicators you have are, are these lag indicators. And, that, and that's a huge problem here. So, you know, you, you t we talk about 300 cases out of what? Who are we testing? I can tell you this is, this is a true story. A very close member of my family six weeks ago um, had classic, what now classic symptoms of COVID, went to a COVID assessment center and was told, we're not testing you, just go home and, and self-isolate. And, and, this, and, and, and she was sick for about six or seven weeks. There's no doubt she had COVID, COVID-19, and she wasn't tested because those are the rules at the time because we were rationing tests in this province. And I think that will be one of the lessons uh, from this, having spent the early part of the outbreak uh, of the uh, epidemic in a COVID assessment center in Markham before I moved over to work at Participation House. Um, I've been dismayed at how we're good at following rules in, in healthcare, you know, and I think we shouldn't have been so good at following rules back then, because I think uh, cl our clinical judgment in those early days, um, and I'm, by early days, I'm talking mid to late March, a doctor's clinical judgment is this person in front of me really should get a test, or the person that I've heard about that's waiting in the line that actually doesn't even get as far as being in front of the doctor, uh, they should really get a test. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure how we will reconcile that going forward. I think it speaks to the fact that people on the front lines often can't get their voices heard. Uh, as well as they might, because there were certainly lots of people trying to get the message through that we need to be testing more. And, you know, we don't get to go back in time. It's not a, a, a randomized control trial. But uh, if, if we had tested more in those early days, most of us suspect that we'd be in better shape now. Mm. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it, quite, it also makes you, it makes you wonder, like, you know, we don't have a time machine. But if you could go back to January 1st today and, and tell the Ontario government, if you spend $25 billion on testing, you'll save, you'll save $150 billion in, in lost jobs and, and uh, lost economy, would they have done it? In a heartbeat yeah. today. Uh, but but as, as Jane said, hindsight is 2020. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's so true. But to me, what, what's a true measure of like a good government or, or population is like, what do you do now? Like, what, what are the next steps that you, like, show me that you've learned um, from, from, I don't want mistakes or whatever the term might be. Like, let's, let's fix this in the future. And because um, there's so many, there's so many holes. There were so many holes. Like, I, I mean, we did talk about the long-term care, which is, I mean, how long have we been talking about long-term care, about some of the care that's been involved there? Um, the other thing, I mean, that is, uh, striking to me or, not, or disappointing is how like marginalized 
patient groups have been really significantly more impacted uh, than other groups. It really, once again, going back to those social determinants of health, like how big of a like factor that is in terms of your outcomes. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, this is at a higher level will be addressed. I know, Andre, you and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, social determinants and, and marginalized patient populations. What, what are your thoughts in terms of the experience so far? Well, I think, you know, a lot of this was, we should have known it, right? We know that vulnerable populations are the canaries in the coal mine. They're always hit first by everything, by infectious diseases, by wars, by you name it. So they're always, they're vul they are vulnerable to, to all this stuff. So I, I don't think, I don't think we did near enough. And I think we kind of have come up with too many excuses for it, especially long-term care. I think long-term care was pretty clear early on. BC had a really good warning sign there that this was a problem and we just dragged our feet. You know, I think one of the biggest problems Canada has is we are very cautious about doing anything. We, I, I read something the other day, which I, I thought was really well stated. It said that the biggest lesson of, of COVID-19 is that it's better to act quickly and be half wrong than to act slowly and be half wrong. Oh, we, were in the, we were in the latter category. We acted slowly and we still did things wrong and everybody's gonna make mistakes. So it's better to, the countries that have done best really just did stuff. They didn't always do the right stuff, but they acted and we, we didn't do that. And we, what do we have as a result? We have thousands, literally thousands of our elders are dead that many of them were money, not all, but many of these cases were preventable. And we know that from other jurisdictions within Canada and other jurisdictions without, within the world. There are countries that have zero long-term care deaths. So there's no, mm. there's no excuse for what happened here. That's incredible. And, I, and we, I, I, you know, as I suggested earlier, we need to figure out how to take our blinders off and intentionally look for who else is at risk. Because as Andre said, we can predict who that will be. And I think about Indigenous peoples uh, who live in very crowded communities with terrible health systems. They have, in Ontario at least, uh, in, the, in the far north, been uh, almost entirely spared to date. And I credit First Nations leaders with being super proactive on this. But, you know, this this is with us for the next 18 to 24 months before we're likely to see a, a vaccine that's actually going to be in widespread use and uh, who really knows when that will happen. Um, but those communities will not be able to be, uh, to avoid having someone bring COVID into their communities uh, forever. And that we should have a, a strong focus on, on looking at those places to make sure that they are prepared. Um, it's going to be, again, hard to make up for lost time having not put a proper focus on, uh, on First Nations-led health systems in remote communities. But we can, you know, we could probably go down a list right now and say in the next two years, where are the outbreaks going to happen? Where are the outbreaks with bad outcomes in particular? going to happen and there are lots uh, plenty of places where where uh, the focus should be but as is always the case the voices that we most need to hear are barely audible 
I think uh, I think the the indigenous communities is actually a, a really good success story that we don't think about enough. Uh, they were really battered by H1N1. There's massive death rates in those communities, and they were better prepared this time. They're better prepared than downtown Toronto. And to their credit, they acted. They didn't dither. They blocked off access. They did stuff that really prevented the spread of disease. And they don't. There's not enough credit, and they did it with very few resources. So I, I think that's we could take some comfort there that this, uh, you know, the actions there were really saved lives. Mm. Uh, and to your point as well, Jane. Like uh, we talked to Mark Tyndall a um, couple weeks ago in terms of the BC experience, and you know he's been an act advocate of having more housing and stuff for uh, the homeless population. And this is a, one of a couple of positives that have come out of COVID. Like they, according to him, were able to establish some housing because they realized like if that goes through their, their, their group, like it, it, the disease can amplify significantly. And the BC government, public health uh, invested in that. And um, it just goes to show. And as you, as we, alluded to before this is they haven't been hard hit um but yeah it's that kind of as you said like think about who's going to be next who what the future will look like and invest you know don't stand idle you know it quite it's interesting interesting that you, you say that uh, on the and and i agree um i think there's some factors there that we just don't understand uh i you know i visited the downtown east side a few months ago and i i um uh, we did a show on White Coat Black Art about their Toros program, which is the, the tenant overdose uh, response uh, organizers. So these are people who, who go, who visit the, uh, the uh, uh, 15 to 20,000 people who live in single room occupancy hotel rooms in the downtown east side, uh, delivering safe injection kits and delivering naloxone kits. And, and, uh, and it's true uh, you know, I spoke to, on the weekend on, on my show, I spoke to uh, Dr. Daniel Kala, who's the chief of the emergency department at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. And he said they have they've hardly seen COVID-19 in the downtown east side, let alone people dying of COVID-19. So so, you know, we can say we can pat ourselves or they can pat themselves on the back and say that they've arranged for housing. But the people that I interviewed that I visited are still in those single room occupancy hotels, which are not pretty rooms by any stretch of the imagination. So there may be other factors at, at play that are reducing the rate of infection there. One of them is that they take care of one another. They have strong social networks mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and you know, they look out for one another. So there may be, there may be some other factors that, that we're not aware of. Interestingly, uh, opioid overdoses are up in the downtown east side, fatal overdoses, and that's because people are overdosing on their own. They're not going to safe injection sites because they're afraid of getting COVID-19 uh, at the safe injection site, which is a fallacy. They're not gonna get it there, but they think they are. Wow, a um, couple of things to talk about. One, um, you know, we alluded to some of the negative or secondary consequences of all this COVID-19. What has driven, driven me nuts is oh my god um <laughs> is a fire alarm system is the fact that people are so scared of contracting it the, the people that are presenting the hospital these days are presenting so late and it is it's so it's so sad whether it's their mi whether it's their respiratory copd ailment they're presenting late because of fear and i 
I do feel like this is where we've failed people a bit is like having that message of, you know, if you need care, come to, come to acute care. You, this is, if you need medical attention, let's deal with that, you know, and we're doing all we can in the hospital to reduce risk of transmission. Um, but um, yeah, this, that's, I just wanted to mention that too. And then the other point I wanted to make in terms of things that we don't seem to understand, um, like there really seems to be, at least in my eyes and, and some evidence, some real strong correlation of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, like some risk factors that are associated with other, obviously, medical conditions. But this, is, this also seems to be linked to poor prognosis. And sometimes I wonder if part of the dialogue in the next little while should be like, hey, you know, here are these risk factors. What can we do to reduce that? You know, like, let's exercise. Let's improve our nutrition. Let's do stuff to reduce our, our uh, risk of COVID. And in the worst case scenario, people just get healthier, you know. But back to your point, though, there's so many, to me, mysteries about this, this, this virus. Like, it, even clinically, how it's behaved, like, with the clots and the kidney disease and the, um, the delirium. Um, so many parts of this is, is, is unique. Well, part of that is that we thought uh, of COVID-19 initially as a respiratory disease. And, it, you know, now we're seeing it more as a multi-system disease that's characterized by, by damage and inflammation to blood vessels that leads to clotting, that leads to the damage you're referring to. So increased risk of strokes and and uh, acute coronary uh, syndrome, uh, uh, kidney failure, et cetera. And, and you know, frankly, there's a lot that, 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 that uh, people on the front lines and, and researchers are trying to unpack uh, as to the patho pathogenesis of the disease and, and, and to develop treatments that, that will prevent people who have a mild case from having a more severe case. One of the other things that your comments bring up uh, is the issue around behavioral science. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's interesting to say how else can we address risk factors like obesity or hypertension? And man, if you, if you got the secret to that figured out so that we can do it better than we have, then you, you don't need a job running a podcast. You can, you know, you're, you're fiscally secure for a long time. But anyway, you know, we're not good at behavior science and, and doctors, I think, are not taught enough and health professionals maybe in general aren't. Uh, you know, we get a few courses on motivational interviewing and then, you know, we were sent off to do our thing. But um, motivation or sorry, uh, behavioral scientists have a lot to say in this pandemic and we haven't used them and I don't hear their voices being amplified. But you look at uh, not just those kind of risk factors that you talked about, the, the biomedical ones, but you know, what does it take to encourage young people to not gather in large groups in parks in Toronto? You know, how are we, where have we failed to explain that that that, that might be risky behavior? Um, we kind of give trite paternalizing um, messages about people staying home and expect that that they're actually going to do what they're told you know any parent will tell you that that you you got to have some some serious uh 
techniques and understanding of what it takes to encourage people to make decisions that public health might say in their are in their best interest, but they, they have all of these other influences in their mind, uh, all these other stressors in their life that make doing the right thing a heck of a lot harder than it, it can appear out of the mouths of the all-knowing uh, public health experts. So Jane, so, so mocking or stigmatizing people uh, who went to Trinity Bellwoods is probably not a good way to motivate them uh, to, to not to gather in groups. So what is the way to do it, to motivate them to, to follow public health uh, uh, instructions and, and, and advisories and guidelines? Well, mocking and stigmatizing don't work for anything. But again, I'm gonna hand this question over to Andre because he's the expert on this. I don't know if I'm the expert, but I can, you know, we like anecdotes in my business. So I look at what happened in Trinity Bellwood, and then I look, I was reading right before that what was going on in a big park in Berlin. So where lots of young people gathered. So what did the police do in Berlin? They went around with their loudspeakers and they said, thank you very much for respecting social distancing. We appreciate how you're keeping your elders safe. You know, none of this, oh, you're awful bunch of, you know, hipsters and you're trying to kill everyone. That, that's not what they were doing. And the other thing is, I think you have to make rules clear. Uh, we have now circles in Trinity Bellwood Park. A lot of people mock that, but what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having, you know, people would say, oh, you know, they're stupid. They need circles. And I say, well, I guess we're stupid. We need lines on the road to know where to drive too. Uh, we need little stickers telling us what two meters are. There's nothing wrong with making rules easy for people. So I think, I think there is a lot of behavioral science that you're, you're quite right, Jane, we haven't uh, tapped into that and, and learned lessons that we've known for a long time about other things and applied them to, to this epidemic. And Andre, to that, I would add empathizing with the person you're trying to persuade. And, yeah. and you know, for instance, there is a program, a pilot program in Quebec City, where new parents are visited by a vaccine counselor. And, and uh, the and, and, you know, this is the, the purpose, the long-term purpose is to increase vaccination rates by addressing vaccine anxieties and, and, and hesitancy. Uh, and and what, they, what they do, their method is, is to provide information, but to begin in an empathetic way, an empathetic manner, uh, approaching every parent and saying, um, you obviously want to do the, the best to keep your baby safe. And, and, and instead of positioning themselves in opposition to the person they're trying to persuade, they join them on the same team. And they have, they have a success, uh, they have a, an enviable success rate compared to, to any form of browbeating or lecturing. And I know someone's written an excellent book about empathy, so. I hear, <laughs> I hear that may have happened at some point. Amen. It's, it's such a good point. Because I, 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 I was actually wondering, my wife's a psychologist, and we were talking about you know, the, 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 the amount of fear messages that were coming through initially and like when COVID was starting to appear and, and we're wondering like from a behavioral science point of view, this, maybe this is what you need to, to, to set the bar, to really get people to obey. But the points you're making are, are fair. Like you really want to create change. Like I, I give this story every once in a while. Um, my wife and I were at the, the DMV or getting our license uh, updated. And the lady at the desk was fury, like just super agitated, unfriendly and something was up. And I'm, my, my personality is, you know, I, 
I'm, I'm, I get short too. And she's giving us attitude and I'm like about to do my thing and be like, excuse me. And my wife grabs, grabs my hand and looks to the, to the, the employee and goes, you know, sounds like you're having a tough day, you know, is everything okay? And the whole thing just diffused and she just was like, yeah, thanks for asking. And she was the most pleasant person afterwards. But as you said, like the, the carrot or the not using that stick could probably go a long way in terms of creating the nudges and the, the things necessary for us to really have that behavioral change. But, um, yeah. People yeah, are people are really anxious and worried and frustrated and lonely and bored. And then we hit them over the head with these sticks and, and browbeat them. Uh, we haven't got the approach right in terms of trying to say, this is really tough. And we get it that you're, that you haven't been with your friends for two months. Mm. Um, but we're going to have to figure out a way to do this safely and uh, it's going to be better for us all in the long run. So mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've got some work to do in getting that message correct. Absolutely. I mean, has there been any, what are, what are the positives you, you want to take away from this experience so far? Because to me, there's been quite a few and, and I could point to a couple of things that, you know, all of you guys have done, but um, without putting words in your mouth, what, what are some of the positives you've, you've seen uh, during this pandemic? Let me start. I'd like to start with Jane, uh, Dr. Jane Philpott, uh, volunteering her time and effort and putting her life on the line to work at Participation House. And in the same, in the same way, uh, people in acute care hospitals from, from Sinai Health System to, to North York General to, to University Health Network and many, many others lending their time to long-term care facilities to spell off exhausted uh, care providers on the front lines there. Uh, the, 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 that sense of, of duty and honor and, and, and helpfulness is something, is one of the positives that I'm going to take uh, from from this this horrible mess that that our society is in right now. Well, I would add as well that there are loads of positives. Uh, you know, you never not that we would ever wish this on any society, but um, just to kind of follow up on Brian's comments about my experiences working in Participation House. Um, you know, I wish I never had to do that because uh, six people died. And it was a horribly traumatic experience. And the nurses and PSWs that uh, have been there for a long time, they will be traumatized for the rest of their life by what they lived through. But having said that, um, it was, for me, it, working there absolutely has made me a better person. It, is, it taught me things that I would never have learned otherwise and particularly getting to know the residents who live there who uh, are extraordinary people. I have a, a, a niece with very severe disabilities from Rett syndrome and so I've come to understand a little bit about, uh, uh, about what it's like to be a family member of someone with a severe disability but to work in a setting where you've got 42 adults who are completely dependent upon the people around them for their feeding, their bathing, their, uh, their movement from a bed to a chair every single day. 
Wow, that's a, that's a very special place and it really takes exceptional people to care day in, day out for 20, 30, 40 years for these people. And they have been out of our minds. We haven't paid attention to who these personal support workers are uh, in the way that we should have. And they, they really are not, not just healthcare heroes in tw the year 2020, they've been doing heroic work for a, a very long time and have not had the attention they deserve. So uh, we've, we've all learned a lot uh, from this and I could go on with lots of other positive things, but I think that's one that needs to be shared. I think that's a really important one that we've learned that uh, low, low wage workers are not low skilled workers, that these jobs are really difficult and they're really important. And we're starting to talk about maybe giving them a half decent wage now. And that's important. I think the other thing that we've really uh, learned from this, from the long term care debacle, is the importance of family caregivers. You know, we have family caregivers now who've been locked out for two months. And I think this is one, this is one of the biggest travesties going on now is that we're not letting people in to do this care that they've been doing for years. We know that the paid staff are great, but they just can't do it all. The families are so essential and this continued to lock them out. Ontario suggested today they're going to lock them out for another month or two. And I, I, I just think that's unconscionable uh, for the residents, for the families and for the system. Mm. I mean, this is where I think a lot of, I wish a more regionalized approach could be, make a lot more sense. Like, you know, if you're in Moose Jaw or wherever, an area where Kingston. it's Kingston, where there's hardly any cases, you know, for our, our long-term care patients not to see their loved ones, it's, I don't know, there's, there's, we're still human beings. Um, but just to echo too, what Jane Brian were saying, like, I've never felt more close to my, my colleagues than in this moment, like in these times, like when we've resuscitated and, and intubated and doing all the right things with and, and seeing our COVID patients go through and, and seeing the community band behind us. And I, it's just been, it's just been special. And like the, the, the heroism, like, 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 like the RTs, the physiotherapy, the uh, personal support workers that, often don't get enough credit um it's unbelievable what the, the work that they're willing to put in and obviously the nurses obviously the docs one thing i do want to say too is you know i saw some young staff like young residents that would would step in we were we were short on staff a couple like early on the pandemic when a lot of people need to be isolated after traveling and they were willing to step up and they they knew what was at stake and you know it almost puts a tear in my eye just thinking about what they're willing to sacrifice for the betterment of us all, you know, and um, I, I just, there's so many, so many good things. And the other thing too, is just some of the healthcare delivery, like the fact that, you know, we're, we're more open to doing virtual care, I think is like about time. Like we, we were busting out shows on this early on and like, there's no reason you should be leaving your office for a five minute, five minute uh, a GP visit when you could just be on doing what we're doing and say, yo, can I get that uh, prescription refilled? Or uh, here's my minor ailment. Like this, you know, we're, we're in 2020. And so I'm, I'm hoping things like that will be, will stick. But th to me, there's been a lot of positive stories that, that connection. Um, so yeah, I think um, a lot of, a lot of good overall, despite being scary. 
Well, I think that virtual healthcare one is a really important one. How do we ensure that it stays? Because it's not only good for practitioners, but it's good for patients. But there's, there's things that have to be addressed. We have to make sure we have decent internet around the country. You know, one of the, the, the paradoxes, I think, is that people who could most benefit from virtual care can't access it because they don't have decent internet in northern Ontario and across large parts of the country. So we have to, we're spending money on all kinds of things and rightly so, but let's pump a little extra money and do these things that are gonna change care permanently and for the better. Excellent, excellent. I know we're trying to say good things right now, but uh, but there there are some things as we as we move forward into into the next few weeks, the next phase. Some things that I'm concerned about. I'm I'm very concerned about uh, people, about about frontline physicians, for instance, working in offices. Uh, you know, many have closed down their offices. They don't know what primary care is going to look like uh, in the weeks and months ahead. And at first I thought, you know, is this some political ploy? Is this an argument for more money, an argument to accelerate payments for virtual visits? And, and I'm starting to get the impression as some clinics close down permanently that, that there are some massive changes that are taking place uh, that, were not, that are not being thought through. And I think that, that the consequences are, are, are going to be felt by patients who will have an even greater lack of primary care, of access to primary care than they've had uh, in the past before the pandemic. Well, well, I certainly hope not. Like, I mean, the, the uh, amount of people searching for family docs and, and primary care. And I mean, I know, Jane, we were going to talk about this on our show before COVID happened about like, you know, primary care overall and, and how, that could be enhanced, but oh man, that would be devastating because that's like the cornerstone of yeah. our healthcare system, you know. Um, well, it's certainly been, it, it, this has been really tough on primary care providers um, and particularly those who have, uh, are funded by fee-for-service models. This has not been, uh, not been a good time for them and uh, they, Many of them aren't feeling well supported. I think Brian's raised a very legitimate concern. I hear you. I hear you. So, um, unless there's any pressing issues, I, we do have a boatload of questions from the <laughs> from the, all the people streaming, um, and so I think we'll uh, we'll just address these. Um, uh, if it's okay with you guys, um, do you think changing the directives on the topic of face masks impacts public's trust of public health experts? What are your thoughts on the use of face masks currently for the general public? You guys have a sentiment on uh, or thoughts on face masks overall? Seem to reduce I'll address the part about, you know, I think people changing their minds, uh, scientists changing with the science, I think that should happen. I don't know why that would upset people or discourage them. It should do quite the opposite. It's like, hey, we learn stuff, we're going to change our recommendations. That's how science should work. That's how healthcare should work. I, I just don't understand this, this notion that, oh my God, they've changed their mind, they're horrible. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I'm not a great enthusiast about masks. I think masks are useful, but I worry that the way they're used, people think they're a substitute for everything else. So I, I think masks have a place. 
in uh, public places, et cetera, but we have to make sure that they're not used in any, as an excuse to not social distance, to visit, you know, to have a party. Let's have a party and we'll all wear masks, you know? So I, I think we have to recognize the unintended consequences as well as the benefits and some of the possible risks. I agree with with Andre. You know, and, and you know, I will note that that organizations like the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, the Public Health Agency of Canada have gone from being very tepid on masks to being much more much more positive about them. But Andre is absolutely right; they are not an excuse to abandon hand washing and and physical distancing and all the other measures. All right, I take it, Jane. You you, you don't want to. <laughs> I can I can read your body language. I, we can leave These it. guys have said it all. Okay, perfect. Um, She's waiting for a better question. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> I do have to. I want to say one thing though. What what I and, and take this with a grain of salt. I feel like traditionally in medicine things move slow. And um, one thing that another positive I would take from this is the the willingness to be nimble and to adjust with what we see in front of us. I think is is something to be commended because um, I, I personally at the bedside have seen our um, willingness to change affect lives and, and potentially save lives. And so I, I, I do want to say, you know, echo what Andre is saying. The fact that we, there was some changes of opinion uh, to me is actually a good thing. Um, I think Canadians should get the, some of that credit too. I mean, I think, I think uh, health healthcare providers have, have been pretty nimble, but Canadians have been incredibly nimble when you consider, nobody knew the term physical distancing uh, at their New Year's Eve party. Uh, and now it's it's part of our, our, our everyday language. And Canadians have adapted extraordinarily well. I mean, people around the world have had to, and it's amazing when your life is at risk, the changes that you'll make. But when I, you know, I, I, I get teary-eyed when I go to the grocery store with my mask on and and watch other people and people are sad and and there's sort of this sense of is our life really going to always be like this and it just doesn't feel the way it used to feel and people are afraid to look at each other because somehow they think that you know looking at someone will potentially transmit virus uh, but at the same time I, I look around at people and I say I, I think I'm really proud of you I'm proud of the way that people have have you done what it takes and nobody's nobody's loving this but we're we're looking out for each other and that's pretty except pretty pretty special wow. yeah, it is a good the pandemic's a good reminder of how resilient people are how adaptable we are because we we've changed incredibly in a very short time and most people are doing okay with it 100 percent um okay next question do you think there'll be another full lockdown based on if Sorry, if there's a second wave, do you think we'll be proceeding with another full lockdown? That's a tough one. <laughs> Depends if we can get our act together on testing and contact tracing. I, would, I meant to ask, sorry, sorry, Jane. No, if people don't want another lockdown, then we're going to have to figure out how very quickly to make sure that, that as, as Andre alluded to earlier, then when there's an outbreak, boom, we're on it. We've got all the appropriate people tested, uh, rapid turnaround on contact tracing. I think the workplace issue is a big thing. There, there should be ways to be able to do surveillance in workplaces that would prevent us from having to lock down. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's going to be up to us. 
Well, I think, I think locking down gets more and more difficult as we go along. You know, we did the one biggie. Uh, people made a lot of sacrifices, but it gets harder each each time. I, I, I think we have to figure out ways to, to control this. You know, I always say we need to learn to live with the virus instead of in fear of the virus. So we've I hopefully gone through the fear period and now we're going to get to the adaptation. How are we going to do this, live with it when we do have surges? how are we going to deal with them? And I, I don't think it's going to be by shutting down the economy. It might be by shutting down parts of it. Maybe mm -hmm. our meat plants are going to close for a few months until we figure that out. Things like that. I think that's, that's what the future holds rather than these big lockdowns. Because they're very, you know, this was not a very subtle gesture as we closed out everything. And in retrospect, we probably didn't need to. But mm -hmm. we can learn from that going forward. I'm not big on trying to rewrite the past, but I think in, in the future we can learn from the past a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for that. Uh, one of the questions here, um, we did touch on virtual care. Um, what changes will be permanent? Um, so Dr. Jane Fulpock, can you speak about the governmental response and how the division of powers between federal and, and provincial impact our abilities to respond to the pandemic? <laughs> uh, is, that, is, that, is that fair? Or you, uh, oh, sure, it's fair. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'd like to hear what the other guys have to say on this too, because they've, they've thought a lot about it. Um, as I said earlier, I mean, Canada is a big country geographically and, it, and, and even within, you know, province, we talked about the fact that there's regional variation. And so you have to um, enjoy the, the benefits of, of regional variation. But I, I do think that uh, where we have really done well in Canada is when we have decided that there are certain things that we're going to agree on as some basic principles. Um, you know, the, the, the best pieces of legislation around healthcare uh, have happened at the federal level. You know, you look at the Medicare Act of 66, the Canada Health Act of, of 1984, where we decided that we were going to make sure that Canadians had at least hospital care and doctor's care on the basis of need and not on the basis of ability to pay. That was probably the you know, the most important single piece of legislation from a healthcare perspective that the country has ever had, although there were pieces of legislation that led up to that, but we've, we've enjoyed the benefits of that while not perfect. Uh, it has, has uh, kept a heck of a lot of people alive. I think it's time to, to, you know, look at other areas in which we need to have national standards and there needs to be strong federal leadership. And I, I personally think that long-term care is one of them uh, that we talked about earlier. Um, there, sure, it could be fixed from province to province, but you know, provinces do have standards. And then of course they have their own um, ranges as to how well they actually follow up on this on the standards, whether or not they have uh, proper processes for uh, accrediting and and uh, checking on facilities. I think this is an area where there, if we're going to study anything, I think we need to look at what it would look like to set national standards to have federal funding for not just long term residential care, but the whole spectrum of, of care of the elderly from home care to to long term care so that people will 
know that when I grow older, I will have access to the care I need uh, and it will be of a, of an, a standard that we all believe is, is fair and dignified. Yeah, I think, I think Jane said it well. I don't think there's any, uh, unfortunately, you know, we can't have a Canadian discussion about healthcare without talking about the constitution. So that's frustrating, but I think there's no, there's no legal impediment to doing the right thing. So I think we have to sort of drop a lot of this posturing and say, listen, we're going to have standards. They don't have to be federal. They can be national means they're agreed upon. And there's no reason we can't do that in all kinds of areas. Uh, there's no reason that the way Ottawa's spending money, they can't spend some of it smartly on helping uh, encourage provinces to fix long-term care. So we have to respect the jurisdictions, but we also have to, I think, respect the population. And it, they don't give a crap about, you know, these divisions of power. They care about the care being delivered to their granny. And that, that's what we have to focus on. So I, it really bothers me when this becomes an excuse for not doing things. There's no reason that we can't fix this stuff nationally, federally, provincially, by sitting down in a room and, and agreeing on stuff that we know we should agree on. In addition to long-term care, I wonder whether emerging infections, global health threats, couldn't be uh, you know, rationalized as being in the federal file. That should be federal jurisdiction, if you think about it. You know, in, a, in, in an age when we have international travel, people traveling all over the world, landing potentially in any province, why is it a provincial responsibility? Why not make that file belong to the federal government, uh, along with the resources that, that are necessary to go with it? And, and you know, to, to, to Jane's point, I think money talks, and I think a federal government that, that wants to be more involved in, in, in healthcare and guarding the health of, of Canadians um, needs to put more money into it. And we know that, that, that federal funding for healthcare uh, dropped fairly substantially over the last 20 years, 25 years, and, and, and I think it's time to take another look at that. Good points. Thank you for that, guys. Um, Can I just put in a plug for national data too? Do it, do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm embarrassed as a Canadian that, I mean, God bless the folks who work in the Public Health Agency of Canada. They are good people. They're working really hard. They're a very small department in the, in the big picture of things. But they have their hands tied behind their backs trying to get data on anything. And this, is, this was an issue, you know, when I uh, had the portfolio and I was trying to get information on how many people were dying of overdoses. And we could not, as a federal government, oblige the provinces to provide that data to us. You almost have to go begging to say, here's how we'd like it delivered. This is the, this is the, the kind of information. And would you all agree nicely to, to send us that data in, the, in a, a similar manner so that we can get a picture of what the heck's happening across the country? And, and is there any chance that we could do it not 18 months after it happened, but, but when it happens? Um, we're, same thing again. We do not have, the, the federal government and the Public Health Agency of Canada do not have the, the legal authority to uh, ask provinces to hand over their information. And, you know, they do put out data, but it's pretty patchy. Uh, it's pretty, it lags tremendously and it's reported differently in, from every part of the, of the country. That's, 
that to me is like no excuses. Like that to me is crazy. Like it, this, this stuff should be standardized. This, the amount of like how important it is to have reliable data. Like we, I mean, we look at, uh, we just did a webinar on the prognosis of ventilated patients. So there's a paper comes out of JAMA uh, saying that over 80% of patients on ventilators um, do like uh, don't survive. There's a, and this is not what we were seeing locally. We were not seeing anywhere near those numbers. And these, this is going out and it was affecting, it was affecting people's judgment. Uh, we, were, we were talking about stories where, where, you know, 50 some year old people that needed to be put on a ventilator were like, saying, oh, maybe, actually, I don't. I, re I read the news and saying how I'm not going to be, not going to get better because I'm on a vent. Like, this is insane. And for us to not have standardized throughout the provinces, here's the data we need to make our decisions um, and to produce good science, too, and good, and good papers. I, I don't know. It, it's one of the things that, to me, has always baffled me. It comes down to, like, even the fact that we have in Ontario – even in this this city, the, how many EMRs are there? You know, um, don't get us started. I'm sorry, to, I didn't open. I didn't want to open that box. But the <laughs> the point is, it doesn't seem like something that would be that much to ask, but is super important. How about that? <laughs> um, yeah, let's stop faxing. Let's stop faxing data to each other. Maybe to start with, we need yeah. fax machines, Andre. Yes. Oh man, this is what I'm saying about slow to adapt. Fax machines, pagers. I got a pager in 2020. Like I'm playing hockey and people will see the pager on the on the bench and be like, what is that device? I didn't know that, that they still existed. Um, okay, this was this question actually is uh one of my favorites, actually. How are we going to deal with wait times as a result of what these locked the lockdown? You mean the backlog in, in, in cases uh, that have been Absolutely. postponed? Absolutely. Oh, boy, that's a huge challenge. And, uh, and you know, I, now there are opportunities here. You know, when I spoke to, to uh, uh, the vice president of, of clinical care of, surg of surgery at uh, University Health Network, uh, he was talking about, uh, um, uh, for the very first time, arranging uh, a triage list of patients who would be called back in for their for their semi-urgent and elective procedures, and and there for the first time there would be communication between different different surgeons uh, over mm -hmm. the merits of who's at the top of the list and who's second and third. I think we need to do that. Uh, I think that that you know certainly we need um, a, a group of wise people, so not just one surgeon, for instance, saying you know advocating for their patient, which is important, but they should be advocating to to a, a committee of wise people. That's that. That's using data and metrics to to decide who is is closer to the life and limb criteria and 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 uh, uh, requires uh, treatment more more urgently. And I would hope that in addition to life or limb, they'd be looking at quality of life as well as an as an indicator of of uh, of of whether somebody should be moved up the list or down the list. Mm -hmm. Any takers? I, the the actual original question was whether we we think privatization has a role here, considering some of these uh, 
wait times and the backlog of cases. What any thoughts on that? I, I can't. I don't think that's a. I don't think that's really a factor. I think we only have so many surgeons. We only have so many operating rooms. We have to figure out how to use them more efficiently to uh, alleviate some of the backlog. So. The good news, if you can put it that way, is I think we use our operating rooms really inefficiently now. So there's a lot of opportunity there to, to clear up some backlog pretty quickly. You know, nobody ever operates after 3 p.m. We can fix that. There's lots of things that can be fixed immediately. Uh, my other part of the wake part, part uh, puzzle is I hope we never see people in hallways again, right? There's mm. been no hallway medicine for two months. That's magic. Let's make sure that we, we don't start having people on stretchers for 48 hours again. I don't know how realistic that is, but I think we've demonstrated it's doable. Hmm. I would just echo what, uh, what the others have said in terms of this is an opportunity for creativity. We, we've always known there are weird things about how operating time gets uh, dispersed and you know why we have operating rooms sitting empty for two thirds of the time. Uh, now's the chance where we've got backlogs, where we've uh, had money that would have been spent, not that there's a lot of money to go around these days publicly, but there are a lot of procedures that have ha would have been done over the last four, three, four months that haven't been done. Um, some of them can be done after hours and uh, it will. It, this will force some of the change in uh, hospital care that's been a long time coming as well. You know, there's there's an interesting point, and and I you know, and I don't know uh, quite if I if I if I uh, misinterpreted your question um, uh, to mean dealing with the backlog of, of cases because you know, I've heard some estimates that it could take 18 months to two years to clear a backlog that that took that took just just two to three months to develop. Um, it would be very easy for us to say as a panel to say that 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 operating rooms should be running 24 seven to get to get through the backlog of cases. But there, you know, there are union wages uh, to pay, um, there's overtime to pay. And, 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 and it would be so tempting for provincial governments to say, look, we can't afford that. We're just, you know, people who waited, if they have to wait longer, they're going to have to wait longer. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we get creative with solutions. But but, but it, you know, it's easy for us to say, let's just clear the backlog. But, but I think the, you know, God's in the details and, and, and how that happens, I think is going to be, is going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, certainly I could speak for a lot of my colleagues. Like it, there's, I know we were saying there's a limited amount of, of docs that are available. There's a lot of unemployed like surgeons and like um, there's a lot of uh, like, I think of my orthopedic colleagues that are on there. I don't know, third fellowship, maybe getting a PhD in the right yeah. toe. Um, yeah. You know, there's, and the, the demand is high. Um, so I, I think that's why I thought this was a fair question. But I, I mean, I do also think there is tons of room for efficiency. Um, um, but, you know, as you mentioned, the devil is in the details. Um, there's... Let me just maybe two more questions. Um, considering the, the that one of the leading causes of death in Canada is due to chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, hypertension have negatively inf influenced patient outcomes during COVID. What are the areas that can be improved in our education and healthcare system to promote preventative approaches and improve health? Maybe we touched on this a bit. Was uh, like a bit on the behavioral science and, and um, 
but it, it's true. I, I must say in medical school, the preventative element of, of, of health, um, I wouldn't say it was ultra emphasized. Um, I know Andre, I, I feel like this is uh, up your alley. If you have any thoughts towards that. Yeah, I think prevention is important, but I think even more important, a lot of these illnesses like diabetes are linked to socioeconomic circumstances. So I think uh, we haven't talked about this, but I think one of the, the single most important health initiative that's happened during this pandemic is income support. I think the federal government deserves a lot of credit for what it's done to bolster people's income, to prevent people from starving, which was really a possibility, which is happening in other countries. I think they've done a tremendous job, and it's reminded us that that's the single most important thing for our health, is having money to buy food and to put a roof over your head. And I think it's also brought us a lot closer to a discussion of basic income. So I think some really good, and that would be really good for the health of our country and for Canadians. So I think there's really, you know, we can talk about prevention and get people to exercise and stuff, but they have to have the ability to do it. And the way to have the ability to do it is to have security, in income security, housing security, food security. This is all the stuff that makes us sick, not the fact that, we don't exercise. People, those of us who exercise have the luxury of doing it, just like we have the luxury of, of distancing and isolating that other people who are at far more risk didn't have that luxury. This would be a good time to put in a, another plug for family medicine and primary care too, um, be, which you referred to a little bit earlier. And I, I do worry about the long, you know, people talk about excess mortality and collateral damage related to the pandemic. And there's certainly been lots of that in the short run uh, from people who have avoided coming to the emergency department, and especially in the early days. Uh, but there will be long-term collateral damage just from a whole slew of deferred, delayed, uh, absent uh, preventive care, chronic disease management. Uh, people have not been seeing their family doctors or their family health team, uh, their primary care provider in the way that they normally have. And, and that will have long-term consequences. So, uh, you know, the, the, those, this is the, the bread and butter stuff that, uh, that people don't see that happens behind the scenes. Uh, those regular visits to make sure that people are actually having their chronic diseases managed properly. Uh, you know, you don't want to go many more months without people getting that kind of preventive care. Pap yeah, tests, important mammograms. Point we've talked about all these folks in long-term care and how they've suffered, but most seniors live in the community and many of them live with these chronic illnesses. They've been deathly scared to get medical help. And I think you're right, we're going to see the consequence of this. You're going to see it in the ER for, for months and years to come. Well, guys, I wanted to try and end on a more positive tip. And I, I'm just trying to think of <laughs> how, to, <laughs> how to leave less time. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've been, we've been preaching like, uh, on, the, on the show, and, and I, I got a couple articles on CBC is, um, really, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. We've we've done a lot to prepare. If we look at how we've done compared to other regions of the world, I think there's a lot to be commended. But you know, I think ultimately, though, we have like all considering some pretty good public health, and I and I think that at the at the end of all of this, 
we're going to overcome and, and do, be okay. And I think um, we've shown a lot of grit and a lot of determination. And I think all this, these efforts that Canadians have been making and, and has been like clearly beneficial to, to, to our people. So I think um, despite of a little bit of doom and gloom, I think we will still overcome. Um, I just wanted to, any parting words actually guys, before, uh, we we say we say goodbye. Yeah, I'd like to to shout out uh, people like Andre and 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 Carly Weeks and Kelly Grant and and you know Teresa Boyle and Jennifer Yang and 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 all the other reporters who've been working in this very precarious journalistic environment, bringing us story after story. You know, Mike Crawley, my colleague at at, at CBC, and all the people, all the all the public health specialists, the epidemiologists, like. You know David Fisman and 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 infectious disease consultants like Isaac Bogosh who donated their time on social media, who have kept us all up to speed on what's going on. Without them, we would not be able to ask some of the questions that we've uh, been able to to ask, let alone try to answer them. So that that certainly has been an incredibly positive development, and you know it's a reminder to me just how important journalism is to 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 uh, to buttress our democracy, but, you know, especially at a time of crisis, uh, like a pandemic. I like all that. Any parting words, Andre or Jay? Well, I'll just say, uh, this may be unusual for a journalist, but I think we have to give a shout out to our politicians. I think they have a thankless task. They've risen to the challenge in virtually every jurisdiction. We're hard on them. But we've had a tremendous response politically, great solidarity, a word we love in Quebec. Uh, Canadians have really rallied. You know, we haven't been near as partisan as other countries, especially the U.S. People have really come together and said, listen, let's do what's for the common good. Doesn't matter if we're liberals or conservatives or NDP. Let's, you know, agree on this and bring in programs that help people. And I, I don't think they get enough credit for that. And uh, Jane knows this all too well. They don't, they get a lot of crap and they don't always get credit where it's due. And I'll jump in with one other positive thing to say. I think this last few months has shown us how much uh, we care about each other and has helped us to really focus on on what we miss most, the people we miss, the opportunities to be able to hug one another, reach out and, and shake hands, um, touch one another. Um, this has really forced us to look at, uh, at what means the most to us, gathering together with, with friends and family and coworkers. Um, we miss a lot of that stuff, but there's gonna be a day where we're gonna be able to hug each other again. And uh, I hope that we never forget uh, what it was like when we couldn't do that. So uh, here's to the day that we can like, we can give you a high five and actually touch one another. <laughs> a high five, absolutely. I'll, I'll be bear hugging you, Andre and Brian, for sure. Um, <laughs> listen, guys, this has been amazing, like truly amazing. And I, I really want to thank you for being able to take the time and uh, be able to discuss these issues. And I, I really think we are we're better for it. Like I, I feel more informed. I feel more, you know, more hope. Uh, and I, I just, I, I think it's amazing that you guys were able to do this and I hope to do it again, actually. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.
Thanks for having us. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll have the video version on YouTube and the podcast released tomorrow. Um, Thanks for listening in and uh, take care, everybody. Smile.